Good morning, Grace. So good to see you all. How delightful. I wish I could give you all a hug. Maybe we'll do that secretly later. But um, I am excited to be here, and I am really excited to kick off this Proverbs series. After we had a reading service last week, and Kenny gave a great introduction to it, I just love this book. It's a, a book of the Bible I've been wanting us to preach on for a long time. It's not an easy book to preach necessarily, but it is one that is so important for us. There's a phrase used several times throughout Proverbs, and it's this, get wisdom. Get wisdom. And I love the simplicity of that. It's almost comical to me because that's much easier said than done. But it says it very simply, very starkly. Randy Grundyk reminded me of a Steve Martin skit. The second album I ever got was Steve Martin's comedy album. It was an actual album. Did anybody have that? Where, uh, anyway, first album I got was Steve Miller Band, but then I got the, the Steve Martin comedy album, and he, he was hilarious. He still is, but he seemed to be funnier back then. But there was a skit Randy reminded me of in light of this get wisdom idea, and it's this thing where he has, he's saying, you can have a million dollars and never pay taxes. Yes, you can have a million dollars and never pay taxes. And then he says, first, get a million dollars. And then his solution not paying taxes is just tell the government, you forgot. But, but get a million dollars is easier said than done. And so, that's true of wisdom as well. But we don't want to lose the simplicity in the midst of the difficulty of getting wisdom. We want to get wisdom. I am desperate for wisdom. It seems the older I get and the more responsibilities I have in life and the more people I feel responsibility for, the more I desperately need wisdom. I've never felt a greater need for wisdom than when I became a father. Every one of my kids is so different than, than the other. And, and if I do one thing for one, it might be helpful, but another, it's completely unhelpful. It's so hard to know how to love wisely. Isn't it good to know that God never loves stupidly like I do so often? He never loves out of ignorance. He always loves with perfect wisdom. Everything he's, he does is fully infused with perfect wisdom. And that is great news. And in some ways, we are so unlike God in this. We can genuinely want to love. We might even have the resources, but we're not sure how to do it well so often. But the book of Proverbs is about getting wisdom. And we desperately need it, don't we? How do we navigate these days well in the midst of this pandemic? And the racial tensions in our country, uh, an impending election that's, that's coming up, that's causing so much strife and difficulty. What does it mean to be wise in these days? What does it mean to be wise in these days when we have so many challenges on our plates? Well, the Bible's going to help us. It's going to help us get wisdom. That's what we're after. So grace, let's get wisdom. This book of Proverbs is introduced, there's a prologue, really an introduction to the introduction in the verses we'll be diving into this morning. And it's Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. That's our passage for this morning. Proverbs 1, 1 through 7. The book of Proverbs 
is a book of comparisons. Mindy Klanzik did such a great job of explaining this in her lesson for the kids uh, last week, I think it was, yeah. And it, because she talked about these contrasting ideas we find. And it's basically the difference between wisdom and foolishness. You compare things. That's actually literally what this Hebrew word means that we translate proverb. It's a comparison. It's, it's looking at things and looking at life and situations and circumstances in a contrasting way. What is the best way to do this in light of the possible contrasting options? It's a wise pronouncement that we find here. It's a parable. Jesus told parables. He, he talked about stories that compared and contrasted at times with life. And that's what we're doing. We're looking at life through these comparisons, these potential options we can take. And fundamentally, the option of wisdom versus the option of foolishness is what we're finding. And it's a king and a father speaking to a subject and a son. So it's, it's very personal. It's very precious. And the, the king is Solomon. The Bible tells us he's the wisest man who ever lived before Jesus showed up. And he asks for wisdom. God says, ask for anything you want, Solomon. And Solomon says in 1 Kings 9, give to your servant a listening heart. Oh, a listening heart, that's where it needs to start. To judge your people, to discern between good and bad, because who is able to judge this? Your difficult people. The word was good in the eyes of the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. So and God was so pleased that that's what he asked for. He said, you could have asked for power. You could have asked for riches, but you asked for the best thing. You asked for wisdom, Solomon. And so I'm delighted to give that to you. This wisdom, this teaching, this understanding, this insight, this prudence, this knowledge, this discretion, this righteousness, this justice, this virtue, all these key words Proverbs uses to describe what it was Solomon was asking for and God was delighted to give to him. This is how life is found through the way of wisdom. This is how life is discovered and experienced. Not just life now, but abundant life now. Not just abundant life now, but eternal life forever with God. It's found through the way of wisdom. So I need to ask you, is this something you hunger for? If God said you can have anything you want, would you have said what, what Solomon said? I need wisdom. That's what I need. Do you hunger and thirst for wisdom? Or do you think you pretty much know everything you need to know already? Do you think you've in some ways arrived? Because if you don't have a deep, deep hunger for wisdom, this series won't be helpful to you. The book of Proverbs won't be helpful to you. If you either don't think you could ever have it because you're such a loser or you think you have it, both ends of that spectrum are dangerous and they lead you away from pursuing wisdom, believing you can actually have it and knowing you desperately need it. That's where we all need to be with a humble confidence as we seek wisdom together. This book contrasts the wise man and the foolish man 
And the foolish man is careless. He lacks understanding. He actually does, isn't just passive to wisdom. He despises it. It's almost insulting that someone would suggest he needs it. He thinks he's arrived. He thinks he doesn't need it. He thinks his own wits and his own intuition and his own experience has perfectly positioned him to know what's right. But the Bible says that's not how we are. We don't start off full of wisdom. We start off fools. I know that may sound insulting to you, but that's how the Bible pictures human beings left to themselves without God's amazing enabling to lead us to the way of wisdom. If you can't identify with a fool, you don't understand the sinfulness of the human heart. We don't naturally move toward God. We don't naturally move toward what's good and what's right and virtuous and wise. We naturally move away to sin and selfishness and foolishness. If you're not aware of this, please ask God to show you this truth about yourself because that is how the Bible describes the human condition. We don't boot up wise. We boot up foolish. This is a book for idiots. But it's a book for idiots who are starting to move away from their idiocy to wisdom because they're aware that they are idiots. <laughs> we don't know what's right. And so we need to hunger and thirst for this. It takes a humility to learn from God because you need to assume you desperately need to learn from God. And the authority of God's word, the authority of the body of Christ, as we understand God's word together and carry it out together, is so essential. And sometimes I wonder, is this what we're missing most? Even in the church, a profound humility before and submission to God in his word through the church. It's not enough to say, oh, I submit to God. You know, I don't really care much about the Bible, but me and God, we're tight. Or, you know, I don't like the church very much, but me and God, we're close. That's not how it works. You don't understand how God works if you don't submit to his revelation as the body of Christ, the people of God, the church, work this out together. We need to seek this together. James 1.5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, and I hope you believe you desperately lack wisdom. There's almost humor in that. I think Kenny pointed that out in one of the, the sermon preps. He, he, wasn't it you said you chuckle when you read that? Yeah, he reads, if any of you lacks wisdom, and it's almost like, well, yeah, yeah, we lack wisdom. Do you even need to say that? We do, we lack wisdom, but what's the answer? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask for it from God, who gives to all without reservation and not reproaching. And it will be given to him, like Solomon, how God was delighted to give him wisdom when he desperately expressed his need for it and his request for it. Realize that the God we're worshiping this morning loves to answer the prayer for wisdom. And that's what we're asking him for this morning. So let me continue to pray as we have been this morning. Lord, help us now as we go to your word that teaches us the way of wisdom, which is the way to you to be like you. As Gerald was saying, we actually are able to become godly. 
which fundamentally is to know you and your ways. And we pray that we would be led in the way of wisdom today. And throughout this whole series, we commit it to you and we commit ourselves to you humbly and desperately needy. And in Jesus' name, amen. Proverbs 1, 1 through 7. Here we go. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise heart, let the wise hear and increase in learning. And the one who understands, obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. All right. I've got seven points. What? Yes, seven points. Here they are. Proverbs are one for real people. They are two for real life. Proverbs are three moral and intellectual. Four, I'll get back to all of them. If you don't get them this time, that's okay. Four, they are needed in all seasons of life. Five, Proverbs require a process that makes us think. Six, Proverbs are relational. And seven, wisdom is perfectly found in Christ. Wisdom is for real people. Sorry, wisdom is for real people for real life. Wisdom is moral and intellectual. Wisdom is needed in all seasons of life. Wisdom is a process that makes us think. Wisdom is relational. And wisdom is perfectly found in Christ. So first, it's for real people, one, and for real life, two. Wisdom is this. It's having the very best goals and the very best way of getting to those goals. We need both. It's not enough to have the best goals. You need to have the best ways to get there. The means matter on the way to wisdom. And so God doesn't just give us the right purpose, the right motive, the right destination, the right goals. He gives us the right way of getting there because that matters deeply. And the ultimate goal for us, if this is all going to make sense and become anything more than worldly hacks and how-tos, if it's going to be anything more than temporary success that this kind of wisdom provides, it needs to have the best goal, the ultimate goal. And that is the glory of God. The glory of God has to be our consuming passion and goal in life, or wisdom won't be what it's supposed to be. 
and it couldn't be more real. That's a lofty, glorious goal, but on the way there, it is accomplished through very normal, very regular life. Ephesians 5, Therefore, consider carefully how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of the time, of every opportunity that comes our way. In the 7-Eleven, in, in, in Stater Brothers, as you sit in traffic, what is the wise way to do that? As you interact with your children or your neighbor whose dog keeps barking, what's the way to interact with them in the midst of real life? Oh, these are glorious and lofty goals and ideals, but they are worked out in the Christian life, in the daily, in the intensely practical and very often until you have practical needs, you don't realize how much you need wisdom in accomplishing the goal in the midst of seeking those needs. Make the most of the time, why? Because the days are evil, Ephesians 5 says. Because of this, do not become foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. We are to find instruction. Instruction is this interesting word. If you are instructed, there is a discipline that's involved with that. There's a guidance that's involved with that. If you want to learn a sport or an instrument, I was just talking to Laurel McMillan Friday, and, and I asked her, how many kids at Grace have you taught the violin? She's taught hundreds and hundreds of kids the violin. It's at least 30. And when you take lessons from Laurel, and I said to her, you know, people pay you to... Um, teach violin lessons, but they're really paying you to just be with their kids because you're so amazing. And, and she, she just was actually humbled and moved by the fact that she gets to spend time, an hour with a kid as an adult, and how influential that is. It's just wonderful. But, but when she teaches lessons, she's instructing. She's saying, do this. Don't do that. And if you receive those instructions, you do what she says and you stop doing what she says to stop doing. So it takes a humility. It takes an ability to say, I will be instructed in the way of the violin. I will be instructed now by God in the way of life. And there's a simplicity to this I don't want us to miss. It's obeying God. It's saying yes to what he says yes to and no to what he says no to. In some ways, it couldn't be more simple, even though it takes a lifetime and it's as profound as it can be. That's point one and two. See, it won't take that long. Here's point three. It's moral and intellectual. Yes, it involves transformed thinking. It involves instruction that leads us to a different way of thinking. But it also leads to a moral quality that that change of thinking involves. I need to change my thinking, but not as an end in itself, but so that my affections and my desires are changed in a virtuous direction. Look at verse 3. To receive instruction in wise dealing in righteousness and justice and equity. Those are moral qualities. Those aren't just knowing the smart way to do things. Those are things that come out of the heart these things of righteousness, living according to God's moral law and justice, doing what is right according to what God says is true, and equity, not treating people unfairly in life. We need these things, and these are moral things as well as intellectual things. It's straight thinking and deep character that leads to righteous behavior. 
Oh yes, it's thinking and it's character. If it doesn't get into who we are, then it's sadly insufficient. And that who we are then naturally leads to how we live, what we do, how we behave. Really smart people can be complete fools. That's something we need to realize. Mere intellect is never enough. Really smart people, even people who figured out how to do life in a way that leads to earthly success can be fools. And we'll find out exactly what that means closer to the end of our passage this morning. But knowledge isn't enough. This is how Derek Kidner puts it. We need relationship dependent on revelation that is inseparable from character. So who we know God to be, as we'll see later, leads to who we are becoming in light of who he is and who we are before him. And this has a transforming effect on who we are. And it depends on the revelation of God. So it's relationship dependent on revelation and inseparable from character. Four, wisdom is needed in all seasons of life. All seasons of life. Verses four and five. Give prudence to the simple, the uninformed, the inexperienced, the youthful, the ignorant, the ones who just don't know yet and don't know better. Discretion to the youth. But then it says, let the wise hear and increase learning. So it's not just the ignorant, but it's the wise who need this as well. And let the one who understands obtain guidance. So in other words, the mature and the wise and the young and inexperienced and ignorant both still need wisdom. We never stop needing wisdom. Youthful arrogance will keep you from being a pursuer and a finder of wisdom. If you consider yourself young today, I'll leave that up to you to decide, but are you desperate for wisdom? Or do you already think at 13 you already know more than your parents? It seems like that's what just about every Disney movie teaches you. That older generation doesn't understand that dinosaurs are really friendly. And we need to teach them that dinosaurs are good and we just are different, right? It's a great movie. I love it. But there's some messages here I'm concerned about. It, it, there's this, this uh, worship of youth in our culture now. Let's hear from the kids. Let's hear what the children want to do. You know, there are church growth movement principles that say, target 21-year-olds in what you do. The old people, they stick around with stuff they don't like, but not the young ones, so target the young ones. Can you imagine developing a ministry around the wisdom of a 21-year-old. Nothing against 21-year-olds. I love you dearly. It's who I love to spend my days with as a college professor. But the reason you come to college is because you recognize you need to. And we never stop needing to. Please don't think you've got it figured out. Please be desperate for wisdom. I think one of the great, and this is not an overstatement, tragedies of our day is that the young don't value the wisdom of the old. 
like they used to. I think that's changing. I think young people I talk to, they're not enamored with cool youthfulness like, the, like young people were years ago when I started teaching college 25 years ago. There seems to be a growing appreciation for the wisdom of the aged, the gray hair. Remember I spoke at a youth camp in San Diego and this really cool San Diego youth pastor came up to me and he said, dude, I got to tell you, when I saw you in the brochure, I saw your picture and I was like, oh man, who's this old dude? (laughs) And then he said, but you know what? You were all right. Well, thank you, cool youth pastor dude, that I'm all right. And I didn't say that, and I didn't say the 50 other things I wanted to say, but my goodness, do you know how much the Bible says about valuing the gray hair, the gray head, the, the one who's been around a while and has gained some wisdom? And so to the young, seek wisdom and value those who've been down the road longer than you have. Don't think you've got it all figured out. And old people that I most certainly identify myself with, as that youth pastor would have clearly told you, I I need to hear, and you need to hear, you haven't arrived. Oh, you you may have attained amazing competence in your field, in your area of expertise, and you might start to have this sense of, I am a very competent person. And it really bothers you when people don't listen, especially young people, to your wisdom. But you need wisdom, too. That's what he's saying. Let the, let the learned continue to learn. Let the wise hear and increase in learning. And the one understands obtain guidance. You never arrive in this life. You need to continue to pursue wisdom. It's not just the fool who needs to do this. He's not listening. He's chosen the foolish way. The young need discretion. They need increased sophistication and shrewdness concerning temptation. Young people, do you know how temptation is deadly and you need to go to war with it in the morning or you think you got it figured out? You think you can look at anything on your phone and you'll be good? No, the Bible would say you're a fool if that's what you think. If you don't think it's a war every day for your soul going on, you're going to be blindsided. You'll be a sitting duck. And that's true of the old people too. Let's not coast. Let's not think we we can just put it in neutral for for the remainder. No, we desperately need wisdom too. Paul said as an old man, not that I've attained all this, but I press on to the upward call in Christ Jesus. I am so grateful for the folks who are just a little ahead of me down the road who have set such an example to me as long as I've known them here at Grace. I just think of Walt and Sherry who are up here. You know, Sherry Harris' father was Ray Ortland, and, and she grew up with one of the most effective, important preachers. He never saw himself as important. But he was of a big church here in Southern California. And she's heard more sermons in her life. And Walt and Sherry, they come, look look at them. Walt, she's got her Bible, they've got their Bibles open. They're taking, I am always completely confident, even though I'm almost never telling them anything they don't know already, that they're here to learn. They're here to benefit. And, you know, then, then we can see youthful people saying, I know this already. Richard and Ruth Dix, look at them. They got their Bibles open. They're here to learn. They are, I'm so humbled by this. 
I go to the Dixes in between services when we have three, and I say, any changes to the sermon? What did I do wrong? And they'll tell me sometimes what I did wrong, and, and they'll have some advice, and I always take it. I don't always make the changes sufficiently, but I want to hear, because they come to learn. They haven't figured it out. They know this. It's just amazing. Doris and Wally, they're probably, are they watching, you think, right now? Doris and Wally, I can't tell you. They led, uh, uh, they were part of a revival that God did in the Northeast. They led a church. Uh, Wally was a, a pastor. He finished his freshman year at Wheaton College, and a few months later was in the Pacific fighting the Japanese. We've got a lot to learn from Doris and Wally, but they've never stopped believing. They have a lot to learn from God, from his word, from preachers, and from us. Listen to these people. Follow their example. I am so encouraged and humbled by it. Thank you, dear ones, for your example. You are the understanding ones. You are the wise ones, and you're still here to learn. It should be rebuked to me anytime I see them and I think, oh, I, I know all this. I got to figure it out. No, we all need it. We all desperately need wisdom. And that's why the intergenerational and diverse commitment of grace is so important. That we don't want to segment people off into these little groups where the young just constantly go with each other and pool their ignorance and, and, the, and the old go and get more and more cranky. And we don't want that. We, we want intergenerational diversity at grace because the Bible actually commands it. Just read Titus 2. We need this. That's four. Five, wisdom is a process that makes us think. Look at verse six. We need to understand a proverb and a saying and the words of the wise and their riddles. Riddles, that's interesting. We want and God wants to make his ways and wisdom clear and plain and simple, but he doesn't want to make them simplistic. There's a big difference between simple and simplistic. Simplistic is completely uninformed simplicity. Simple is a kind of simplicity we arrive at after having worked through the complexities of life. We want a simplicity, but not something simplistic. Riddles. Jesus tells parables at times to make you have to reach for what he's saying. Think about what he's saying. Dwell upon what he's saying. Insight comes through careful observation. Jesus won't throw pearls before swine. If you don't want to work and think and meditate and seek and strive for wisdom, you won't find it. Because things worth having require some effort. They require some thought. And one of the biggest problems in my lifetime in the church is this idea that we have to completely water down, dumb down, and oversimplify things so that people never have to think. Jesus didn't play that way. He wanted children to understood what he said, but he even wanted them to think, to get there, to really meditate. To treat, what do you mean by that? We'll read the Proverbs and say, wait a second, Lord. Do I, do I speak to a fool or not? Because this proverb says that you listen, but, and you speak, and this one says you don't. Which is it? And now we have to think. And we'll do that all the time through Proverbs. We need to get beyond the surface. We can't be shallow, superficial, frothy people. 
We need to be people of depth. One of the best books I've read on pastoral ministry, I don't know know anybody else who read it except one friend who recommended it to me. It's The Pastor's Minor Poet by Craig Barnes. And he says the job of ministers, and you should all consider yourselves ministers, is to get below the surface, to understand the subtext of life in the midst of the text of life. And I just have to read a couple of these quotes to you. Listen to what he says. What we're after here to be ministers is to be ones who've been blessed with a vision that allows them to explore and express the truth behind the reality. And he says pastors have to be poets, not major poets like Isaiah and Paul, but minor poets. Poets see the despair and the heartache as well as the beauty and miracle that lie just beneath the thin veneer of ordinary. And they describe this in ways that are recognized not only in the mind, but more profoundly in the soul. What the congregation needs is not a strategist to help them form another plan for achieving a desired image of life, but a poet who looks beneath, beneath even the desperation to recover the mystery of what it means to be made in the image of God. It's actually impossible to be a minister without being a poet devoted to making sense of the work of God in human lives. When an exhausted pastor is entertaining serious thoughts about applying to law school, it's not usually because the theology failed. Often it's because somewhere along the way it became impossible to make sense of that theology in the midst of the ordinary, the relentless messiness of congregational life. And he concludes this way. That's hardly surprising that we've lost the ability to do this in a society that has inoculated us to it because of the mythology that anyone who's going through an existential crisis can resolve that with a new boat. We need wisdom. We need to see below the surface and be people of depth. And so wisdom makes us think. Six. Wisdom's relational. It's the fear of the Lord fundamentally. That's what we find here in verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord, something maybe you're not familiar with. The church needs a massive dose of an understanding of the fear of the Lord. We have so frequently brought God down to our level because he comes to our level, but it's for God alone that condescension is actually needed and amazing and awesome and he should be worshipped because he does condescend. He does come to our level, but he needs to because he is high and holy and lifted up and we need a very high view of God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the first controlling principle. It's not something like starting blocks in a sprint race that you start with and then get on without. No, it's a controlling principle. That's what it means by it's the first thing. It's the beginning thing, but it's something you continue with. Ongoing and increasing fear of the Lord. A worshipful devotion. A right understanding of who God is that makes you get on your face in his presence, not presuming upon him, coming to him with what he better be like if he's going to get your worship. But you bow before God. Proverbs 9.10 says, fear the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So it's knowledge and it's wisdom. It's instruction. It's a God-given enabling to reverence God and his authority and obey his commands and hate sin. 
It's not just knowledge. It's true knowledge that leads to worship and submission. And Romans 1 talks about exchanging the glory of God for the glory of sinful creatures, and that is the opposite of wisdom. And we disobey God because we don't fear him. And he protects those, the Bible says, who fear him. And the fear of the Lord is why we live holy lives biblically and why we submit to one another in the body of Christ. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. When you see God above you for who he really is, fear, healthy, holy fear, that's not the fear a child has of an abusive father, but it is most certainly the fear a child has of a good father who's loving, who has authority, who carries out discipline with gentleness and wisdom. This is the God we serve. And finally, wisdom is perfectly found in Christ. I love how this entire book begins. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. If you know the Old Testament well at all, you will hear the words, son of David, king of Israel, and you will fly to the New Testament and say, that is telling us about the coming Messiah, and that Messiah was Jesus. Son of David, king of Israel, is Jesus ultimately this messianic hope, this figure who would come and bring God's kingdom and God's saving presence to this desperately needy world. Wisdom is not tips for life, it's a person ultimately. He's the king of kings and the only wise God. He's the one we worship and serve forever. Isaiah told us that this Messiah would come forth from a shoot in chapter 11 of Isaiah, from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Jesus perfectly embodies the fear of the Lord before his Father, saying, not my will, but thy will be done in his perfect humanity. And he becomes the embodiment of fear of the Lord and the wisdom that brings and the righteousness and the equity and the amazing moral realities as well as thinking realities that Jesus becomes for us. I will be a fool until I get to heaven. There will never be a lack of foolishness in my heart until I'm completely conformed to the image of Christ. But on the way to that day, in Christ, I am wise. He is our wisdom. That's what the Bible says. He grew in wisdom and in stature and favor with God and man. We're told in Matthew 12, he's greater than Solomon. Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And when Paul prays for the Colossians, he wants them to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Jesus takes the place of fools like us. Jesus became the one in his full humanity who grew in wisdom and became the only wise one fully wise, never falling into foolishness. And his wisdom is imparted to you by God when you become a child of God. It's an awesome thing. 
You know, my kids call me on this. I, I frequently say, you idiot, when I do something wrong. And it's, it's, sometimes it's completely true, and it, I deserve to rebuke myself in that way. But sometimes my kids say, come on, Dad. You're a child of God. They'll, they'll sort of correct these things, right? Have some good theology, Dad, would you? It, we, we are, but in Christ we are made wise in him. And now our job becomes seeking God for the wisdom that Jesus has given us and demonstrated for us in him today. Jesus died for fools. The only wise human being who's fully completed all the wise callings of God is Jesus. And when we trust him, he is our wisdom and he imparts wisdom to us. Yes, fundamentally in who we are declared to be in him, but then practically every day of our lives. So fear of the Lord found in Christ becomes the essence of true wisdom. And that leads to abundant life now and eternal life then. What a perfect time to take the Lord's Supper together. In a very unusual way, I thought this was a creamer. It is not hazelnut. It is the Lord's Supper. And we are living in a day of less than ideal solutions, are we not? But here we go. If you're at home and you don't have one of these, I think I would prefer what you're probably doing, but this is the best we got given the circumstances. But in here is a, <clears throat> a wafer that's the symbol of the body of Christ and the cup with juice is the symbol of the blood of Christ. And the Lord's Supper is simply this that we partake of these most basic elements to remind us of who Jesus is and what he did for us. He gave himself, body and blood, for us in our place so we could be forgiven. If you've never trusted Jesus, if this is something foreign to you, I want you to know that this will be the best thing you've ever done in your life if you turn from your sin and trust Jesus in saving faith. And I pray God is working that in your life now. This is for those who've done that, who've trusted Jesus. If you never have, repent and believe and trust in the Lord Jesus for forgiveness of sins and you can partake as well. But if that doesn't describe you, we love that you're here or we love that you're listening. But this is for those who've been transformed by the body and blood of Christ and who now are the body of Christ. That's who this is for. And, and the Bible gives warnings about taking this unworthily without that faith without a life that's demonstrating that faith in significant ways. And so we take this, though, as needy people, reminding ourselves not just that Jesus took our place, that we, but that we desperately needed him too. And this is a wonderful reminder Jesus gives us. He says, do this in remembrance of me. So <clears throat> let's take the bread together. First, On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, Jesus took the cup and he said, this is my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's drink together. Heavenly Father, we're grateful 
that as the people of God, we are able to partake of this simple, ancient practice. This ordinance that reminds us of the most important thing that's ever happened in human history. The Son of God becoming a Son of Man and walking our streets and taking our place and obeying every step of the way in place of our disobedience and dying a perfect sacrificial death. And we couldn't pay, and only he could, and we are so grateful he did pay that joyfully. And we pray that you would help us to walk in the way of wisdom, which is to walk in the fear of you, resting in the finished work of Christ, the one who alone is fully wise. But Lord, as we walk approved in him, I pray that we would become people in decreasing foolishness and increasing wisdom in the way we live our lives in our kitchens and living rooms, in our boardrooms, our classrooms, our grocery stores. Lord, in the way we live our lives in our churches, in this church, in our neighborhoods, in our community, in our society, on social media. Lord, please help us to walk in the way of wisdom. We desperately need it, and we thank you that you're happy and delighted to give us wisdom when we ask for it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.